when an individual is called into the ministry, they rarely know what they are getting themselves into. The first time you step in front of a group of people to give a talk about something, there's a mixture of both excitement and nerves. I gave my first sermon when I was about 18 years old at this little church in Akron, Ohio. Forest Hill Community Church, two doors up from where my parents still live. There was a group of young people that had a strong bond, and we did a lot of things together. And one of the things that we did is some of us started to take some evening school classes that Moody Bible Institute was giving at the uh, Cuyahoga Valley Christian Academy. And uh, so those of us that were taking some classes just to learn a little bit about the Bible were asked to share some things about what we were learning. And so some of the individuals that were taking classes um, were able to kind of either teach a Sunday school class, and then some of us were asked when Pastor Wilcox was away to give a message, and I was one of those individuals. I remember this group that went to a retreat down in Mansfield one summer, and the place was called Grace Haven Ministries, and it was kind of like a farm. It was kind of the Christian version of Woodstock, I guess. And um, there was an individual that gave a message down there, and his message was about Christ's victory over sin and death and through his resurrection, the hope and promise that we have. And so when I was asked to give the very first talk I ever gave behind a pulpit, I decided I was going to use that same theme, Christ's victory over sin and death and the hope that we have because of the resurrection. And this was a very small church, just like ours, and some of the older people that were in the congregation were very, very polite. And uh, they gave me compliments, and, and they said, I should do that again. Well, I continued to take some classes, and I was given some additional uh, opportunities to do that, and I got the bug or you might say, I got the calling. It's something that I enjoyed doing. And I was working for a heating and air conditioning company at the time out of high school. And I couldn't envision what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Because I didn't think it was going to be in the heating and air conditioning industry. And God began to open a door. And it is now these many years later that when I went into the ministry with wide-eyed idealism, that I now look back and didn't realize how complex, confusing, and confrontational at times the ministry is. And you learn quickly. But the reason I'm telling you this is because I just finished this book that actually belongs to Corey, and I'm not going to give it back to him for another couple weeks, but... It's called Everything is Spiritual by Rob Bell, and it's a great book, but in this book, he talks about his own call to ministry, and I want to quote a paragraph out of the book. He says, this spiritual talk thing I stumbled into, 
This was part guerrilla theater and part performance art and part recovering meeting and part poetry and part subversive rhetoric. And I was captivated. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Well, that was on page six. This is a couple hundred page book. Some things changed toward the back of the book. But what I find is there is a day in the life of Larry, there's a day in the life of Rob, there's a day in your life, and a day can be an actual 24-hour period or it might be an extended period of time that set a direction in some way for you. And maybe it's what you decided to go into as a vocation. It might be something else that you get yourself involved in where you donate your time and energy. But for the next four weeks, I want to talk about this man named Philip. And I'm describing this as a day in the life of Philip. And we're going to see that he appears in Acts chapter 6, where he's chosen as one of the seven individuals that's going to resolve a problem in the early church. Then Acts chapter 8, and then a brief mention in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, where out of the blue, Luke tells us that he had four daughters, and why he was uh, adamant about including that in the book of Acts, I have no idea. But what I want to do is talk over the next four weeks about four snapshots in the life of Philip. And the first thing you need to know is in the New Testament, there are four different Philips. So not every one of them is the same individual. There's a Philip that was a follower of Jesus, one of the 12 apostles. This is not that individual. There are two Philips that are mentioned that are Roman governors, and they have cities named after them. The city of Philippi is named after one of the individuals, and the other is a territory called uh, Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea um, uh, is kind of an area that's north of the Sea of Galilee. So Philippi over in Greece and Philippi north is two different territories. So you have Philip of Philippi and you have Philip of Caesarea Philippi, which are two different areas. Okay, they are not who we're talking about. The individual we're going to talk about is an individual that starts out as basically a server. So I read for us earlier out of Acts chapter 6 that there was a problem that was started in the early church, and it was an ethnicity problem. All of these individuals were widows, and in the New Testament era, when a woman lost her husband, she lost her means of livelihood, lost her means of having a home and a meal, and and so the early church took that upon themselves to provide meals for some of these widows who had lost their husbands. But there were two types of widows. There were Jewish widows and there were Hellenistic Jewish widows. Those that didn't know Hebrew and those that did. And so it seemed as though there was some favoritism that was going on in the distribution of food. It seemed that those that were Torah-observant Jewish widows that spoke Hebrew were getting served first, and the others were given kind of the leftovers. 
So the apostles say, we need to resolve this problem, but we're too busy preaching the word. We're going to develop a committee. And then this is kind of the first committee in the Bible. And these seven individuals are chosen. And it says that they are chosen because they're full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And somehow they are going to be able to resolve the issue that had occurred. So as they do so, the apostles continue to preach and teach and do what we might say is real ministry versus waiting on tables, for heaven's sakes. And so Philip is one of these individuals that is going to resolve this problem. However, what we find is that persecution begins to break out. And the story of Stephen is found in Acts chapter 7, where he stands up and he tells some of uh, the Jews that are listening to him the great story that's found in the Old Testament of the history of the Jewish people. At the end of that chapter, there's a man by the name of Saul, who will later be renamed Paul, who is sitting there watching this young man, Stephen, be stoned to death. And it seems as though at that point persecution spread out and so the Christians scatter and along with them is this individual Philip who is a server who's kind of doing like what happens at the city mission, putting food before individuals who need it. And now he's going to be pushed out and as he does he travels into an area called Samaria. And as he does so, he begins to reach out and share the good news of the risen Christ. Now what we find is that he too, full of the Holy Spirit, is able to do some miracles. And so we read in Acts chapter 8 in the first couple of verses that there were people that were healed and there were individuals that were released from oppressive spirits. And uh, there's great joy that breaks out in the territory there. But the question I have for us today is what prompted Philip to move from being a deacon, because that's the word that is used in Greek, a server, uh, one who performs service, to being an individual that we could call an evangelist. So if you were on Google right now and you typed in Philip the deacon, you would come to Acts chapter 6. But if you typed in Philip the Evangelist, one who shares the good news, it would tell us about Acts chapter 8. It's almost as if he changes his identity and he has a mission to go into an area called Samaria. Now, here is my thesis here this morning. What is it that prompted Philip to move into the ministry of evangelism or sharing the good news? My own take is that uh, the martyrdom of Stephen somehow had a profound effect upon him. That there was some type of interconnection there between those two individuals and one influenced the other one. Now that's usually true with every individual that moves into ministry. There's some type of influence that has prompted that movement. So let's come back to Rob Bell for a moment. So he later says in his book that there is a man that he 
came to know. His name is Ed Dobson. Now, Ed Dobson passed away a few years ago. Uh, he pastored up in Michigan. Uh, he passed away uh, from Lou Gehrig's disease. He had an awful, and he's got a book out, actually. Ed Dobson has a book out on his struggle of, of going through Lou Gehrig's disease. But anyways, this man, Ed Dobson, uh, Rob Bell says this about him. So just listen to a couple paragraphs. Ed Dobson was raised in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He was short, and he had massive hands, and he spoke in a slow, deep voice. My parents told me about him, and they moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, while I was away at school, and they raved about his speaking. So the next time I visited them, I went to see for myself. He was giving a sermon the first time I saw him, standing in his church on front of the stage with his toes, of the toes of his shoes sticking out over the edge like he was about to fall off but didn't. There was something slightly hypnotic and utterly compelling about how he communicated. He made a point, then he'd tell a story, and then he'd ask a question, and then he'd gesture with those massive hands. I'd never seen anything like it. I looked around. People were captivated, leaning forward in their seats, hanging on his every word. I had to meet him. There were thousands of people there that was new to me, a crowd that big and that energized at a church service, and I assumed he was busy after he gave the sermon. I went looking for him anyway, and I found him in a room behind the stage. I introduced myself, and then I gave him a ton bundle album. I don't know anything about ton bundle band, but gave him that album on cassette. He contacted me later to say he loved the album. I wasn't expecting that. And then we became friends, and then he became a mentor, and then he offered me my first job as a pastor. All because he gave him a cassette album of this band. My subject for you today is everything is spiritual. There is an interconnectedness between people and things that somehow produce an effect in somebody else's life. That was true for Rob Bell. I think that was true for Philip. I know it was true for me as well. So, this little church here gave me the first opportunity to preach. However, I think there were some other things that had influence as well. There was this real short old lady that was in that congregation. We called her Grandma Harvey. And all the young people loved her. She was literally about this tall. But she was so encouraging. And she made it a point to tell every one of these young people who had the chance to teach or to speak what a good job they did. Now, looking back on the years, I go, that wasn't a great job. But she was kind enough to be encouraging. 
She was so completely different than I was. She was short and I was taller. She was old and I was young. She dressed like a grandma and I had long hair and bell-bottom jeans. But yet the connection had an influence. You know, everything is spiritual because in the course of a conversation, something can be an encouragement or something can be a calling. So now the years pass by and I go to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And I quit the job as a heating air conditioning apprentice and I didn't know what I was going to do. And when I was done, there was a church by the name of Redeemer Baptist Church in Parma that needed a Christian education director and youth pastor. And so I saw that as an open door and I took the job and made $13,000 a year as a salary. It was there I met Esty. It's in the front of that altar where we got married in 1983. Everything is spiritual in the sense that you never know where one thing will lead to another thing. You have that story. Somebody you met, something you did, something that prompted you to take a step of faith. There was an old guy. This was a German Baptist church. And they used to have services in German and service in English. There was this old guy named Mr. Reich. Do you remember Mr. Reich? He too was a short guy, German immigrant. And I don't know why, but he took an interest in me and he wanted me to come over for lunch once a week and stop by Burger King and pick up two Whoppers. I didn't do it every week, but I did it quite often. And we just shoot the breeze. But I think as I look back, it just wasn't preaching. It was also the opportunity to get to know adults that kind of prompted this movement toward the ministry. Every conversation can have an influence on you because, God bless you, Corey, I did not see myself in youth ministry. I lasted there two years and we got married and we took off for seminary to get our master's degree. But those two years brought us together. Those two years had an influence upon how I looked on ministry. Everything is spiritual in the sense that it has an impact upon us. Because everything seems to be interconnected. Because whether we realize it or not, we are spiritual beings. And as spiritual beings, there's more than just the physical. There are things that affect us emotionally and psychologically too. So... What I want to do today is, just for the time I have remaining, talk just for a couple more minutes about Philip, the evangelist. He was Philip the waiter, or Philip the server. 
but he became Philip the Evangelist. And there's two points up there that I think are really important. Philip is a man that shows us the interconnectedness between daily life and the movement of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it was in Philip's life, he felt prompted to go to a new territory called Samaria. Secondly, his movements were under the control of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts 6, they chose men that were full of the Spirit, it says, to resolve that church problem. And sometimes he was directed by his circumstances, we'll get to that in the weeks ahead, that brought healing and joy to those he encountered. So here's where we're going We've already talked a little bit about the martyrdom of Stephen and the scattering of the church and Philip's movement into a new territory, but here's where we're going over the next four weeks. A day in the life. Today, everything's spiritual. Next week, we're going to talk about every person counts, then every moment counts, and then every breaking wave of new vision and new opportunities. So everything is spiritual, every person matters, every moment counts, and every breaking wave. That's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks, okay? So let's come back to Philip, and what I want to do is ask the question, what is spirituality? A lot of times we get confused about this. I think what is often valued in church is we tend to associate spirituality with knowledge. Oh, that person's so spiritual because he knows so much about the Bible. Or that person is so spiritual because she has such a devoted prayer life. You know, while those are good things, I don't think that's the essence of spirituality. I think we have often heard in recent years that individuals will make statements like this at times. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Have you ever heard that phrase mentioned? I'm spiritual, but not religious. What do they mean by that? Well, I think that all of life has a sacred dimension to it. And spirituality is a growing awareness of this interconnectedness with who we are and the sacred gift of life, and the presence of God in our lives. Now, we use religion to help us in this process. Religion is an interesting word. It comes from the word lig, L-I-G, which uh, we get the word ligament from. It's something that is joined together or holds things together. So when a person says, I'm spiritual but not religious, what they're saying is they're letting go of the form of what can often hold us together. When we go through trials and difficulties in life, what is it that holds us together? And hopefully religion and the people within a community are able to help us hold it together. However, I think there's several dynamics there's a second book. I didn't bring it with me this morning. Brian McLaren has a book out that's called Naked Spirituality. And in it, he makes these four points that I think are really important. Number one, it means that secular science, politics, and economics don't have all the answers for us. We might know all of these things, but there's still a spiritual side to our life that is not answered by any one of those three things. Number two, organized religion doesn't always have answers either. 
a lot of times the form of religion, whatever it is, might become just a routine and it doesn't become what holds us together. It's just what we go through. It's just the motions. Number three, uh, spiritual, uh, spirituality signals kind of an inner sensitivity to aliveness and purpose. So there are certain things that we experience when we go through life that we feel alive when we do it. And it gives us a sense of purpose and accomplishment, that type of thing. Now four, number four, spiritual people often seek practical ways to nourish that sense of interconnectedness with God. And that's where the Bible, that's where prayer, that's where singing, that's where worship, um, that's where meditation, all of these type of things are aids and they're all a part of religion because it helps hold all that together for us. Spirituality involves, I think, the recognition of a feeling, a sense, or a belief that there's something greater than me in the universe. And that something is something I want to be connected to. And that something, for most people, is named God. Does that make sense? Okay, that greater something we call God, that greater energy. So spirituality means knowing that our lives have significance beyond the context of shoveling snow, right? Beyond the context of driving to work, beyond the context of loading the dishwasher. All those things are fine, but spirituality says there is a greater purpose. And what is that greater purpose? Well, we turn to Jesus for Christian, um, and we say, this is what it amounts to. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. However, what we find is there's a lot of things that we need to be careful of, because there's an inner tendency in us when we pursue spirituality to think we finally get it and that our way is the only way, all right? Religion and spirituality, sometimes when they are married, can take a wrong turn. And instead of it being a gift, it becomes a commodity that people try to protect. So you know people, and I know people, that have gotten very tribal in their religion. I'm Lutheran, I'm Methodist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Catholic, I'm whatever, right? We're the ones that are right, everybody else is wrong, our tribe is best, our way is best, our God is best, our people are the best, and because you don't believe the way I do, you're a threat. You need to change your position or we need to silence you and say, you're a false teacher, or this or that, or and there's a variety of different reasons. No, no, no. If Lutheranism or Methodism or Presbyterianism, if that helps you resonate with spirituality, I'm all for it. If it helps you to connect with God and give you a sense of aliveness and give you a sense of purpose, I'm all for it. You see, that kind of religious spirituality that sees other people as a threat rather than a gift, I think falls short of spirituality because all of us are interconnected together. We are part of the human family. And so 
what we find is here is this Philip the deacon waiter server who becomes this evangelist and he goes into territory that most Orthodox Jews would not travel through. So he goes north and there's this area called Samaria. And Samaria is an area where there are half Jew, half Gentile mixed people. Now if you know the Old Testament, you know that the Jewish people were taken into exile into Assyria and Babylon. And there they intermarried. And so they did not keep their pure Jewish heritage. And those that intermarried and had children were not pure Jews. And those that were pure Jews looked down upon those that were half Jews. Well, they all settled in this area called Samaria, which is just north of Jerusalem. And most Jews would stay clear of that area. Jesus himself met a Samaritan woman at a well, we're told in John chapter 4. He reaches out to her. Philip decides that the Spirit of God is prompting him, because persecution is happening in Jerusalem, to go north. And as he goes into Samaria, here he meets these people that have been rejected by Orthodox Judaism because they were second-tier citizens. It's kind of like a caste system, if you will. Well, Philip goes into that area, and we'll get into this next week. He has this pronouncement. It's called gospel. And gospel means good news. Good news that you're loved, you're accepted, exactly as you are, that God cares for you and loves you, and He wants you to be in a relationship with him, and be a part of those who are called to follow him. So here we find this interconnectedness. And this interconnectedness is the ongoing battle of the early church to start to take down the walls between those that are Jews and eventually those that are Gentile. That means they're purely non-Jewish people. And so Philip is one of the first steps in breaking down that, vis- uh, that barrier. So any healthy spiritual vision for life begins with the awareness that everything is connected to everything else, whether we realize it or not. What I do and what I say has an impact on you. What you do and what you say has an impact on me. And everything is spiritual For those of us who choose to follow Jesus because the Spirit of God dwells within us and enables us the ability to pursue justice and joy and peace and creativity and comfort and liberation and holiness and beauty and love. And wherever people encounter some of those type of things, hopefully they too feel joy and peace and creativity and comfort and beauty and love. So... We're going to come to the table here, and we're going to participate, like we always do the first Sunday of the month, in communion. But I want you to hear these words, and you'll come up from this side here, and come across and get a piece of bread and a cup, go back to your seat, and hold it, and then we will partake together. But here is the invitation. Come to this table you who have much faith and you who struggle with believing, 
you who have been here often and you who have come here for the first time, you who are at peace and you who are at despair, we are all a part of the human family and there is a place for us here. Christ invited everyone to the table. May this bread and this wine unite us all together. Everything is spiritual. Keep your eyes open. You never know when a casual conversation might have a profound impact upon you and you upon another. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to the table this morning, we thank you for the bread and for the cup. And we thank you for the opportunity to remember that Jesus came to show his love. And upon the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. On the cross, he said, it is finished. On the cross, he shows us how much we are valued in your eyes. Help us to celebrate it this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Thank you for being here. I have a closing prayer that I'd like to pray. And... I trust that you'll have a great week until we're able to be together. Sometimes when I'm looking for things to put into our worship service, I run across things that seem to be tailor-made. This prayer is one of those. O God, who has made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near, grant that we, following the example example of your servant Philip, may bring your word to those who seek you for the glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. I trust God's blessings will be upon you. Hope to see you again real soon. God bless you.